0: I've been going to church here about four or five years now, I think, and I just discovered something new this morning. If you wear a tie to church, you either lead singing or you preach. (laughs) Okay? Some of you are safe for a long time. All right. Who are you? No, I'm not having a senior moment. I want you to think for a minute. Who are you? Who are you? How do you answer that question? Take a moment. Answer that question in your mind. Who are you? By natural inclination, we see life from a natural perspective. And by natural, I mean human. We look at life, we look at ourselves, we look at our experiences from a normal human perspective perspective. We look at our circumstances. We look at our relationships, and our plans are based upon what we see through our natural senses. The problem is, is God operates on a completely different level. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, we read this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God operates on a completely different level, a completely different perspective than our normal human level. Henry Blackaby said this, What a difference it makes when we see our lives from God's perspective. If we want to go way back in history, John Calvin in his Institutes of Christian Religion says, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon the face of God. Today, I want us to answer that question, who are you, from God's perspective, not a human perspective. But first, let's look at how typically people view themselves. First of all, you are not what you do. You, you ask a career person, who are you? And they'll say, well, I'm, I'm an accountant or I'm a plumber or, and I'm an electrician or I'm an office worker or, or a doctor or a homemaker or whatever. You, know, you ask a young person, who are you? Well, well, I'm a student or I'm a member of a club or a school officer. But you are not what you do because you might not do that anymore and if you are what you do, then you cease to exist. You're not what you do. You are not your body either. Now this goes completely 180 degrees different from what the world is telling us. Okay? If I am my body, then when my body dies, I die. I am not just a middle-aged, overweight male with a receding hairline That's not not my identity, that's not who I am Thank God (laughs) But many people get their identity from their body And the world is telling us, if you want to be happy You have to have a perfect body you want to be loved, if you want to be popular, if you want to be successful, you need that perfect body. In fact, somebody wrote a song about that. You may recall, short people have no reason to live. (laughs) Everybody hear that song? Oh, that goes back. Okay, we got a few. Okay. You are not your body. If I'm my body, then my whole self-esteem Depends upon how much I like my body. And folks, there are a lot, especially young people today, that their whole self esteem is based upon their opinion of their body. And they're not happy and they have low self esteem because they think there's some imperfection with their body. If I am my body, then as my body declines, then I decline. You're not your body. You are also not your name. I looked my name up in a, what shall we name the baby book? And it says that Calvin comes from a Latin word that means bald. (laughs) Boy, that's something to aspire to in life, isn't it? Live up to your name. I'm working on it. When I meet someone, though, and they say, you know, who are you? I say, well, hi, my name's Calvin. You know, it's good for putting a, a handle with a face, but that there's more to me than my name. I can change my name and still be me. I might add, you are also not your mistakes. Some people make mistakes maybe early in life, and then for the rest of their life, that's their identity. I remember when I was in high school, remember that required reading list? Which I swore nobody would ever read those books if it wasn't on a required reading list. And I remember one of those, those books I had to read was the Scarlet Letter. How many of you remember the Scarlet Letter? Okay, yeah, required reading, wasn't it? Okay, a woman makes a mistake and she is literally branded for the rest of her life. Her identity was that she was an adulteress and had that capital A. You are not your mistakes. You are not your past. What's in the past is gone. You are not your mistakes. You're not your past. You're not what you do. You're not your body. You're not your name. Well, then who am I? Everybody needs an identity. We, we, we have to have some identity some, Something that, that gives us a sense of who we are Now we can get it from the world Or we can get it from God Those are our choices today I've listed a bunch of the worlds They don't work So what is God's perspective of who I am? What's, what does God say my identity is? Well, let's, let's, let's look at some things here this morning. First of all, I am a created being. You are a created being. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, it is important that we get our theology straight here because if we are not created, then we are just the result of a random force of nature. If that is is true then we have no meaning and we have no purpose in life. But not only did, does it say that God created us, but it says that he used himself as the pattern. It says we are created <clears throat> in the image of God. Now what does it mean to be created in the image of God? God has no physical form, so it's obviously not talking physically. Well, one, we are rational beings with the ability to think and reason. Why do you think God created us that way? Because he's that way. We have a built-in moral conscience that gives us an inward urge to do what we perceive is is right and a sense of guilt if, if what we do is wrong, unless you're a sociopath. Dan and I were talking about He's not a sociopath. We were talking about that earlier. Okay. As God is a creative God, and all you have to do is go outside and look around, and you can see the great creativity of God. As God is a creative God, God has given us also the power to be creative. Uh, people paint and they build and they sculpt and, and we're able to appreciate what's beautiful to the eye and the ear and the touch. And also when it says God created us in his image, I believe it means that he gave us the need and the capacity for love Relationships. God gave us the capacity to to love and to be loved. In fact, our greatest joys in life come from being in loving relationships. And I think that God created us in his image, and I think what he's saying is the the thing that brings God the greatest joy is our being in a loving relationship with him. That's his greatest joy. It's not an accident that Jesus said the greatest commandment is to what? Love God. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor. The greatest commandments have to do with our relationships with God and with other people and and having that loving relationship. So we're created beings, we're created in the image of God. So, So what does that mean in terms of our practical everyday life? Well, number one, we have value. You have value. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what mistakes you have made. I don't care about any of the negative self-image the world wants to dump upon you. We have value. God doesn't make junk. Okay? If we just evolved, then the only value we really have is the, the worth of the chemicals in our body. Just melt us down and separate the iron from the zinc and whatever else, you know. It's interesting. Musical instruments have different values depending upon who created them. A Stradivarius violin is worth a lot more than just your basic, you know, run-of-the-mill factory manufactured violins if they make violins and factories, I don't really know. Uh, okay, why? Because the creator is, is so much better. Uh, uh, a Rickenbacker guitar is worth more than just a common brand. And what, what makes them more valuable is the skill of the maker. Well, how about our maker? Is he not the greatest artist, the most skillful creator in, in the universe? There's no one more skillful than God. Folks, we're the top of the line. All right? Number two, we are not mistakes. We're not mistakes. In Isaiah 44:24, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you in the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, and spreading out the earth all alone. God is the maker of all things, and that includes you, and that includes me. You know, it does not matter how we were conceived doesn't matter if it's rape doesn't matter if it's incest lack of birth control unplanned single mother married mother it doesn't matter every child is created by God and every child has value because of that and he formed us for a purpose in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 the apostle Paul says this But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace. It's God's calling that he gives us, that that provides purpose and, and value. So, what is our identity? Who am I? Number one, I am a creation of God and all that goes with that and implied by that. Now, the next part of my identity is very important. Uh, In fact, it's just as important as the first, if not more. But not everyone can claim this as part of their identity. There might be some people here today that this is not part of their identity as of yet. And that's this. Not only am I a creation of God, I am a new creation of God as well. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. <clears> Old <throat> things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I am a new person. I, I am a child of God. I went from being a, a natural child to being a, a spiritual child. Now, I have the same fingerprints, and I have the same DNA, I have the same color of eyes, but I am not the same person that was born a thousand years ago, or whenever it was I was born, I don't want to tell you. Uh, Okay, I'm not the same person. When I received God's free gift of salvation, I became a new person. I've often thought that when a person comes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, we ought to give them a new name, okay? We all should just have a new name that signifies, you know, visually, verbally, or whatever, that I am not who I used to be. I am somebody new now. But I haven't been, get, I haven't been, get, I've not been able to get anybody to buy into that yet, okay? But I think it's a great idea. How did it happen? Galatians 2, chapter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live. The old me... Died. Cal Badoich died. And then came back to life as a new person, a, a spiritual person. When your major identity is, I am a child of God, then a lot of other minor identities come too. How many of you have ever heard the saying, Or even said it, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. How many of you said, okay, heard that? That's wrong. You're not. You know why you're not? Because your identity is no longer that of a sinner. Now, you may still sin, but you've been given a new identity. You are now a saint. Okay? You are a saint who's been saved by grace, not a sinner. Because God says, well, what do sinners do? Sin, exactly. If that's my identity, then I, well, yeah, I sin because I'm a sinner, but I've been saved by grace. You know? No, God says you are a saint, and then he goes on and says, now act like a saint. Walk worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. So you're, you're no longer, your identity is no longer that of a sinner. You, you are now a forgiven one. You, you are now a person, holy, And without blame before God. Wow, tear that one apart and chew on it for a while. Man, I am a conqueror. I am a child secure forever. I am a free man. I am a child of the kingdom. I am one who overcomes. All of that comes as a part of my identity of being a child of God. And then something that is spectacular beyond words is I am now the dwelling place of God on earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God who dwells in you? Now I have to be a little careful I tend to, when I grasp something, to just cling on it like there's no tomorrow, okay? Um, At one time, my comprehension of English grammar was pretty bad. Leslie can confirm that because she used to proofread some of my papers. And along the way, I decided if I'm going to be writing, I at I, I least ought to, you know, learn English. You know, I used to tell people that English was my second language, and I didn't have a first, you know. And, and that's kind of the way it worked. Well, what happened is as I, as I learned grammar, I became a grammar Nazi. Okay? I was in Lowe's the other day and there was, I saw a brochure and it was by somebody who wanted to do home decorating kind of in, in cooperation with Lowe's and it went on to say, Lowe's and myself are, I go, no, there's no antecedent for myself, that's not right, it's Lowe's and I, you know, I, I tend to get a little fanatical on when, I, when I see things. Well, I I tend to do the same thing with my theology, okay? Bad theology drives me crazy, just up the wall, okay? And, And little things can really set me off. For instance, we're talking here about the fact that our body is the temple of God, okay? The word temple here means dwelling place, our bodies is where the, the God dwells today. And every once in a while, particularly if you go to a dedication of a, of a new church, you know, they'll, they'll quote the verse, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And, you know, this is now the dwelling place of God. And I go, no, God does not Dwell in buildings made with brick and stone. He dwells in our heart. No church is is the dwelling place of God other than the church, my body. And then people will say, and we're so glad to be in the sanctuary and my the you know the hairs on my neck go up because sanctuary means dwelling place and no there's no room in a church that's the dwelling place of God my body is the dwelling place of God and now that I've confessed that I feel a lot better (laughs) every child of God is the dwelling place of God on earth our bodies are our bodies are the sanctuary. Of God, Our bodies are the church of God today. How does that make you feel? Well, for a while, it made me feel guilty. Because I remember when I was a child, uh, uh, our youth pastor did, did kind of a message on this, and, 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 and he kind of put us on a guilt trip. Because he said, remember, wherever you go, God goes. Whatever you look at, God's looking at. Whatever you hear, God is hearing. So, you know, be careful where you go here and what you see, because you're making God do that too, because he lives within you. It was really kind of a bummer. I got thinking, well, why does he have to live in me? That's going to ruin all my fun, you know? Now I see it, though, as a grand part of my identity. Who am I? I am the dwelling place of God on earth today. And if you're a child of God, you are the dwelling place of God on earth today. Every believer has the privilege of saying that. So what's he doing in there? What's he doing inside my body? What does he want to do? Well, what he's doing is he is transforming me from the inside out. That's how God works, from the inside out. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God gives us his power by the spirit in our inner man, the the. the, That means the power of God dwells in me. God's spirit is the spirit of power. But the goal now of the Holy Spirit living within me is is to cause me, to enable me to be filled with the fullness of God. Now, that's positive. I'm glad the Holy Spirit's in there doing that. Okay, I, I can go along with that. You know, I, I am a unique creation of God by birth, and I am a unique creation of God by the new birth as well. And because I'm a child of God, I'm I'm supernaturally endowed with God's power, and that power enables me to see my circumstances from, from God's perspective. When we look around at what's going on in the world. How do we perceive those things? Do we look at them from a human perspective? Or do we look at it from a a divine perspective? From a human perspective, there's no purpose in life. There can be no purpose in what's going on around us. Life is just a series of random, purposeless events. Luck and fate may come into play, but mostly you, you make out of life what you want but you still have no guarantees. That's the human perspective. I wanna take you to two stories in the Bible that I think just illustrate wonderfully the difference between looking at life from a human perspective as opposed to looking at life from a divine perspective. One's in the Old Testament, one's in the Gospels. Yeah, I got plenty of time. All right, there's a great story in the Old Testament that illustrates God's perspective of human events. Uh, let me give you a little backstory here. The, the prophet uh, Elisha has been thwarting the plans of the enemies of Israel. And finally the enemies of Israel got fed up with him, and they said, let's go get Elisha. Okay, we're tired of this guy messing with us. So over in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we, we have these events taking place. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Okay, you, if you have to close your eyes, I will allow you to do it at this point, okay? But I want you to picture this. This Elisha has so messed up the, the plans of the enemy that he sent horses, and he sent chariots, and he sent a great army to get this one man, Okay? And Elisha's servant gets up in the morning and he goes out to do whatever he does in the morning. And he sees this army and they're just circling the city. And he comes back in panic and he says to Elisha, What are we gonna do? We're we're goners, we're dead, we're we're in big trouble. You see, Elisha's servant was looking at life from a human perspective. The the things that he could see with his eyes looked bad. They were surrounded by the enemy. You know, when we look through a human perspective, things usually look bad. You ever notice that? When we just use a human perspective, things look bad. So, 2 Kings 6.16, Elisha responds. So he answered. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, that must have sounded absurd. Because they were in a small village. And, and the enemy was great among them. And, and uh, they were alone. There's no, there's no army with them. And looking at life from a human perspective results in seeing only the natural solutions to life's problems. And he didn't see any natural solutions. He didn't see an army there that was going to conquer this, this, the enemy. Looking at life from a human perspective denies divine solutions. Let me say that again. That was really key, okay? Looking at life from a human perspective, denies a divine solution. The story goes on, 2 Kings 6, 17. Then Elisha prayed, and he said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This was God's army. This is the ones that were more than the enemies were. that this was the, the spiritual resources God sent for Elisha to use. Now when Elisha's servant saw the resources that God had to get Elisha through this problem, he changed his mind about their hopeless situation. Okay? He, do you have a hopeless situation in your life right now? Maybe you do. Okay? God has resources for you that you cannot see. Second Corinthians 5 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. To see life from God's perspective, we must trust in what we cannot see. And faith is what we believe to be true, even though we can't see it. Let's go to the Gospels. Let's look at another one. I love this one. This is, this is really cool. I, I can identify with the disciples so much here. Matthew chapter 14, beginning of verse 14. It says, And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude, and felt compassion for them, and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him, saying, The place is desolate, and the time is already past, so send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, there are about 5,000 men plus women and children here. And what did Jesus just tell the disciples to do? You feed them. He didn't say, I'm going to feed them. He said, you feed them. So what did the disciples do? Well, they did exactly what you and I would do. They went out looking for a Costco. (laughs) Okay? They went out and they tried to see what resources. Where's the food? Where where can we get the food? Where can we get the resources that we need to to feed the 5,000 plus women and children? And they came back. In Matthew 14 17, they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fishes. Now, I got to wonder, it's not written in the Bible, but I have to wonder if the disciples thought Jesus had lost it. Okay, you know, was this guy crazy? He tells us we got to go feed them, and all we can can find here is a a few fishes and, and a few loaves of bread. You ever had a boss like that that wanted you to, miracles out of the hat you know, do the job but don't give you the resources to do that you know, don't, don't you hate it I'm wondering if the disciples are hating it at this point okay wow that was a powerful statement uh, just leave it Jason uh, let's, Yeah. they looked at their own resources Oh, good thing we didn't hit the guitar. I'm going to wait because you all are looking at him instead of (laughs) listening to me. Okay, okay. For those of you who are listening to this on tape, I'm not going to tell you what happened. (laughs) All right, we're back. The disciples looked at their own resources and said, we can't do it. There's either too little food or there's too many people. And looking at life from a human perspective usually results in that same type of a conclusion. Either the problems are too big or I am too small. Either the problem is so big that I can't handle it, or I'm so limited in what I can do, I can't deal with it. I'm too weak, I'm too poor, I'm too ignorant to deal with it. And folks, when we focus on our inability, that is a sure sign that we are looking at the problem from a human perspective. Well, Jesus wants to teach them the lesson that I want us to learn today. So in Matthew 14, verse 18, and he said, Bring them here to me, meaning the loaves and the fishes. And he ordered the multitudes to recline on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude, And they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. What was it that the disciples didn't see? They didn't see the power of God. They didn't see the purposes of God. And they sure didn't see the provisions of God. They didn't see God's resources. Jesus was giving Israel a foretaste, I believe, of the kingdom that was to come. When when Jesus, as the Messiah, would, would rule over the earth and no one would ever be hungry, they would lack nothing because God was with them. But they, from the human perspective, forgot their greatest resource. And as a result, they doubted. Seeing our resources from God's perspective makes all the difference in how we view our circumstances. All of our resources come from the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the Bible says we can have the mind of God mind of christ and the bible says that we can have god's heart and the bible says we can have god's power but living life from god's perspective means living life under the control of the holy spirit it means yielding to the holy spirit in our life so he can produce those things I cannot stand up here today and give you a list of of 12 things to do so that you can have God's perspective in your life. But I can tell you one thing, one necessary ingredient, and that is the Holy Spirit. If we're quenching the working of the Holy Spirit and i do not believe this we can live life from god's perspective only from our own i don't know what's going on in your life i know some of you are going through some struggles some are physical some are relational but how are you viewing those things are you viewing them from a human perspective that's focusing on how big the problem is and and how small your ability is? That's the human perspective. Or are you viewing them from God's perspective that he can give you the power and the mind and the heart to do God's will and to allow him to do his will within you? Let's bow together in prayer. And I'm going to wait a minute before I pray. And, And I want you to talk to God in your own heart? Nobody out loud, just you talking to God. Can you identify some area of your life where you've been viewing life through a human perspective? If so, are you willing to turn that over to God today and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm giving up on that. I, I want your divine perspective. I want your mind. I want your heart. I want your power. You talk to God, whatever he's talked to your heart about today, and in a minute, I'll close in prayer. Lord, I know in my life I go hours and days without even realizing that I'm looking at life through a human perspective. And I think about the present and what's going on and struggles and issues. Then I start worrying about the future and what might go on and what might happen and, and worry and fret. Father, remind me that All of those things are result of looking at life from a human perspective. And that Father, I am a creation. You created in your image and I am a new creation and you are continuing that work of causing me to be transformed into your image. Thank you Lord for what you want to do, what you are doing, and what you will yet do in us as we yield to your spirit. For I pray in Christ's name, amen.